0: Good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you're here with us this morning. Glad God has brought us together to sit under his word together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. I'm going to read to us verses 1 to 7. Acts 19, 1 to 7. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And this is God's word for us this morning. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that when we open your word, it can be clear to us and it can be known to us because your spirit enables our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we start a new series, a new chapter even in the life of this church, that your Holy Spirit would be here among us, that you would lead us and that you would guide us into all truth. Help us, Lord, now we are expectant, we are longing, we are hopeful, and we pray that Jesus Christ in all of his beauty and glory would be the treasure of every heart, Lord, and you would accomplish all this through the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this morning we start a series Life in the Spirit, a series that we've prayed about, discussed, studied, and considered as pastors and elders for quite some time, in some ways for many years, in fact. And in fact, it could be said that this morning we make visible something that may have been in the background for a long time, but out of conviction and because of the Bible, we must bring it to the front. And this sermon is going to be a long introduction of sorts to uh, introduce the whole series, so bear with me. I will get to our text in a moment, but this will be a topical overview of sorts to start. And also bear with me that this isn't going to follow a normal three-point outline, so don't get too freaked out thinking I haven't got to my first point yet. So I should start with a confession, a confession that there has been a command in the New Testament that has eluded me and eluded this church for too long. There is a command in the New Testament that Paul gives to the churches that I have not known what to do with. In fact, I would submit that there are many churches that don't know what to do with this particular command, so they do what we did, they ignore it. They set it aside, they put it on the back burner to deal with later, to deal with it when things maybe settle down or maybe deal with it when the time is right. And the command, of course, that I'm referring to comes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1, where Paul says, to pursue love, and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Earnestly desire. It's a command to us. It's a command from God. And God is speaking to us through the apostle, and he's telling all the churches, all the Christians for all time, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And the word to earnestly desire in the Greek literally means to be zealous for it, to be positively, this is, the, this is from the Greek lexicon BDAG, it says to be positively and intensely interested in something, to strive for it, to desire it, to exert oneself earnestly and to be dedicated to it. And Paul doesn't only say that once in his letter to the Corinthians. He said it just a few verses back at the end of chapter 12. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. So we and I must repent for the places that we've not pursued this with diligence, out of convenience or even out of fear. Paul will say earlier in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of Christ, of God, rather, with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In the demonstration of the spirit and of power. I love that he adds the end of power. Because it can be so easy for us to just tie up our theology of the Holy Spirit and say, yes, of course, the spirit. Yes, of course, and so on. But he says, no, no. The spirit and power. It's so easily, it's so easy to neglect this command to pursue it with earnestness and zeal. Because it's easy to build churches with just preaching. Churches are built all across this country with just preaching, with plausible words. Now, don't get me wrong, (laughs) the Word of God and its exposition is central to the life of this church. It is the centerpiece of this church. God's Word is what builds this church. We all sit for 45 minutes once a week to be opened, for it to be taught, for it to be explained, for it to be declared among God's people, but... Herein lies the rub. Because there are generally two types of churches out there. There are churches that either esteem the word or they esteem the spirit. There are churches that either esteem the proclamation of God's word or they esteem the pursuing of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to use some words and definitions for a few minutes here. If you miss something or need more explanation, ask me afterwards or ask any of the elders. But these terms and these descriptions will be helpful as we go through this series. One kind of church we can call a Reformed Church. And these kind of churches highly value the Word of God. They esteem sound doctrine. They esteem hard, deep, good theological reflection and precision. There are teachers like R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson and James Montgomery Boyce. Men that have had a deep and profound effect on my life and on this church. Their exaltation of the word of God is to be modeled and to be emulated. But these men would be called is what is known as cessationists. A word that means that they believe that the gifts of the spirit ended around the time of the death of the last apostle. And because that we now have the word of God, we no longer need the gifts. And that is a very, very, very difficult argument to make from the Scriptures. It is largely an argument from silence. And there are men like Jack Hayford and John Wimber who would deeply value the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And they teach their members to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And these camps could be called Pentecostal or Charismatic. If you don't like the word Charismatic, that's too bad because it comes directly from the Bible. And they would be called continuationists with the gifts. They believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available in the life of the church today. But the concern with the Reformed camp is that too much of an emphasis on the Word of God will keep people from pursuing the things of the Spirit. So if there was a concern from the Reformed camp, it would be that the things of the Spirit can just get out of control willy-nilly. People are going to start barking like dogs. Okay, And that stuff happens in churches. And you just look at that stuff and you just go, that just does not seem like it's from God. Because it's not. But the concern with the continuationists that are doing it faithfully and pursuing the spiritual gifts is that there's too much of an emphasis on the word of God it's going to quench the spirit. So let me come to you this morning with a conviction. And that is this. The Bible has no place for the separation of these two ideas. In other words, the reason that we earnestly pursue the gifts is because the Bible tells us to. It's precisely because we are people of the book that we earnestly desire. We value precise, theologically accurate, exegetically sound, Christ-exalting preaching and teaching... And because this book says to earnestly desire, we are going to earnestly desire. We don't have an option. It's not our choice to simply lay it aside. To think that somehow diligently pursuing God through his word would somehow quench the spirit is just ridiculous. And to think that studying and pursuing God's word should not lead us to walk in the spirits and to experience his presence and walk in the spirit is also Ridiculous. So our vision is to bring these two together. And we have spiritual mentors from afar who are pursuing this vision as well. Men like Sam Storms, Matt Chandler, Andrew Wilson, John Piper. We don't have to choose between a serious study of God's word and desiring the sign gifts of the New Testament. We don't. We don't have to pick. Praise God. We don't have to choose between a worship style that either extols God with words or extols God with expression and emotion. We don't have to pick. We can sing songs of all of his wonderful works in the gospel. We can declare his glory and his majesty. We can sing about his sovereignty over everything that is made. We can sing songs that live high in the name of Jesus Christ. Sing songs that declare our God to be a mighty fortress. Sing songs that declare all glory belongs to Christ our King. Sing songs that say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King and the triumphs of His grace. And we don't have to sing those songs with folded hands while we sit down. We can sing those songs that evoke emotion and expression with our hands lifted high and our voices raised high, with our hearts and our minds fully engaged. Singing to a king who has ransomed us by his own life and his death. Singing to a king who redeemed us from the pit of despair. Singing to a king who is coming again to bring us to a place that he's prepared for us. Where we will behold his power and his beauty and his glory face to face forever. That should get you excited. And that's our vision. The convergence of word and spirit. The convergence of spirit and truth The convergence of spirit and sacrament, the convergence of word and power, the word and power, spirit and truth. Now, this isn't just my nice idea. I'm going to show it to you from the Bible in this overview, introductory sermon. So back to Acts chapter 19 that we read at the beginning. In this passage, it says that Paul's passing through the inland country, and he comes to Ephesus, and he comes across these Jewish disciples, and he asks them a question. It's these Jewish disciples, they've been discipled by John, they've received a, repent- a, a baptism of repentance from John the Baptist, and he asks them a question. And what's his first question? It's his first question, have you been baptized? No. His first question that he asks them is, Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they answer, We have not heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now what could they possibly mean by that? It's much simpler than you might think it is at first glance. Commentators struggle and wrestle with what this means. And it's really a simple answer. One commentator, in fact, says it like this this is not the simple answer. He says, It's really puzzling that they don't know of the Holy Spirit because they've been discipled by John the Baptist. Well, yeah, it would be puzzling if that's what it was saying. They're not saying we didn't know that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Of course, they know. They were disciples of John, they're Jewish, they know that the promise of the Old Testament, the entire promise of the Old Testament is pointing towards the Holy Spirit, the Spirit being poured out. What they're asking is this, John Eadie, Scottish commentator, he says this, surely such ignorance doesn't refer to the person of the Holy Spirit, for these men were Jews but the reply seems to be is that we did not hear whether his promised outpouring had been secured yet we had not heard if his promised outpouring had been secured yet because the holy spirit this is a quote from john edy again the holy spirit is the prominent and pervading promise of the old testament we say it again because it's a bold and crucial statement in understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'll say it again. The Holy Spirit is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. The promise of the new covenant is that God would pour out His Spirit upon His people. That's the promise. Look at Isaiah 32. It says it like this. For the palace is forsaken... The populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Do you hear that? Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Later, Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Spirit will be poured out. The text we read this morning in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The prophet Joel Joel chapter 2 says that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Pouring out the spirit. Pouring out the spirit. Pouring out the spirit. It is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. So of course... John's disciples are saying, we just didn't know that it had been secured yet. It's no wonder that Paul, in Ephesians 1.13, in Galatians chapter 3, will call it the spirit of promise. It's his very first question to these people that he's met. Have you received the spirit? He says in Galatians chapter 3, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Spirit indwelling us is the promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Covenant. And then we look, of course, to the opening of the Gospels. Our Savior, the man, Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. This is how the Gospels open. And when he came up out of the water, this is at his baptism immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Don't you just love how the ESV renders that? It says that it's torn open. Again, BDAG, the lexicon, says to divide by use of force, to split, to separate, to tear off, to tear apart. There's such urgency in its rendering There's urgency in using the word torn off, that the Spirit is coming down on Jesus in power. Friends, I'd submit to us that if Jesus in his incarnation, he laid aside aspects of his divine nature and he walked in the Spirit. That's at least part of what Paul means in Philippians chapter 2, right? When he says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, emptied himself. It's a mystery to be sure, friends. It's a mystery to understand how an omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God can somehow lay aside aspects of himself. But, my friends, I think that that's what the Bible is teaching us. That Jesus, as the first forerunner of the new covenant, is a man who's filled with the Spirit. He's walking in the Holy Spirit And throughout the Gospels, that's what its constant testimony is to us. That Jesus is doing things by the Spirit. When Jesus is with the woman at the well, that's a word of knowledge that's come to him. I know that you're not with your husband because you have five. It's a word of knowledge that's come to Jesus and he's using it in an evangelistic context. The next passage in Mark will immediately say that the Spirit's the one that led Jesus into the wilderness. Turn to your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And just see what Luke is doing here. Luke is showing us that everyone in the beginning of the Gospels here is doing things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it's Zechariah, whether it's Mary, whether it's Elizabeth, whether it's Simeon, whether it's John the Baptist, or whether it's Jesus, everybody is doing things by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 15. Talking about John the Baptist. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Chapter 1, verse 36. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 67. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Go down, chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16 John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 4, 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Verse 18, he proclaims in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look, it's just all over Luke's gospel. Just read it. Just read it. Everything is being done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Old Testament, that the Spirit will be poured out on people, is beginning to come to fruition even as we open the first pages of the Gospels. I just read verse chapter 4, verse 18. It says the same thing about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when it summarizes his ministry. It says that he went out through all Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom, and he was healing every disease and affliction among the people. Four things that he was doing there. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was healing, and delivering. What do churches in the West so often look like? The first two churches that preach and teach, preach and teach, preach and teach, preach and teach. But Jesus' ministry was marked by preaching, teaching, healing, and delivering. All four, not just half of them, all four. What does that bring to mind? It brings to mind now tying in what John says in his gospel. John in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And greater works will the, will, than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. He doesn't just say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will preach and teach the way I did. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the things that I did will preach and teach and heal and deliver. And he goes even further. He has the audacity to say, and greater things than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Greater things. Not just the things I preach, but the things that I do. Remember, Jesus will tell us two chapters later in John 16. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You're going to do greater things than I do. Because we're going to do them. All of us are going to have the Spirit. That's the reason why I think that's the first obvious explanation. Not just a couple people will have the Spirit. There's times, right, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit is upon different people to do different things at different times. They're empowered for a season. But the promise of the new covenant is that every single one of us would have the Holy Spirit in us. To do the things that Jesus did. Ministries that are marked by preaching, teaching, healing, delivering. It's so easy for us to just have such a thin theology of the Holy Spirit living in the West. It's so easiest to just build churches just on preaching and teaching. And we should I have to give a caveat every time. I don't mean we're not going to build churches on preaching and teaching. God comes to us through the declaration of his word. I'm a preacher, okay? I shouldn't undermine preaching. I, you know, some job security involved here, okay? But preaching and teaching and healing and delivering was the things that Jesus did. That's the summary of every time Jesus' ministry comes to us, whether it's in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, or Matthew's gospel. He says he's going to send the Spirit. What's remarkable is that the early church knew nothing of going out without the Holy Spirit. The early church are told at least twice wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't go out and start doing ministry until you receive the Holy Spirit. That's how crucial, vital, important it is to do ministry in the New Covenant. It must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It must be. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke twenty-four forty-nine. As As Luke's Gospel is closing, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay until the, in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Wait, stay in the city. But yeah, Jesus, aren't there there needs that need to be met right now? Wait, stay in the city until you receive the promised Holy Spirit. Because it is absolutely essential, necessary, vital. You can't do ministry in the New Covenant without it. So it says, wait. You know that Luke and Acts are a two-volume set, right? Luke starts with O Theophilus. Acts starts with O Theophilus. That's how he closes Luke. Listen to how he opens Acts. Chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which, he said, you heard from me that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. You will receive the Holy Spirit, you will see power, rather, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the disciples wait. The early church is waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, which has been promised throughout the Old Testament, and which is the preeminent promise of Jesus, as Jesus' preeminent promise to the disciples in the Gospels, and he tells them, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And then what happens? Pentecost comes. Pentecost comes. Chapter 2 verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. They saw things and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They saw things, they heard things, they spoke things. When the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the crowd says, verse 12, they're just, they're just confused and perplexed. And they say to Peter, what does this mean? What in the world? And they, they even thought, man, these dudes are drunk. What's going on here? I always thought it was weird that it says, we can't be drunk. It's only a certain hour of the day. And it's like, well, <laughs> wouldn't a drunk get drunk a little early in the day? But... Beside the point. (laughs) And they were amazed and said, what does this mean? And Peter stands up, and Peter preaches a message, and what does he say? He says, this is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was talking about the whole time. He quotes Joel. He read Joel a moment ago. He quotes Joel directly. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is the promised outpouring. You can just follow it through the storyline of the Bible. It's promised. Jesus is the forerunner for it. Next comes the apostles and the disciples. And then they say, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to the Peter and Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we've come full circle. The Old Testament prophesied it. Jesus. And some in the Gospels get it. The apostles get it. They preach the message of the promise of the covenant through quoting Joel and others. They say, now what? And they say, repent. That means to turn from your sin. Turn from the life that you were living. Be baptized, which we're going to do today. We have three baptisms today. People declaring that they are no longer living for themselves, but they're uniting themselves to Jesus Christ. And receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts, then, as the second volume in Luke's two writings, is the living out of Jesus' promises. That's what the book of Acts is. It's Jesus continuing to do his work through preaching, teaching, healing, and delivering. It's the fulfillment of John 14, greater works than these will you do. That's what the book of Acts is. One commentator in the um, New Testament biblical theological series, what's it called? It says, the continued works of Jesus. Trevor, I'm looking at you. The one that talks about the book of Acts, it's called the continued work of Jesus or something, isn't it? Yep, thanks. That's all I needed. <laughs> He's not going to say no right now. <laughs> yeah. That's what the book of Acts is. It's the apostles... And it's the new disciples and it's the new church living out the vision that Jesus has given them in the Gospels. So, yeah, the guys in Acts 19 probably knew about the Holy Spirit. It was the pervading and preeminent and prominent promise of the Old Testament. John even told them, He says, You're going to be baptized with water, but there's going to become one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. They must have known. They just said, has the, in a sense they're asking, has the Holy Spirit been secured yet? Has the promised outpouring come yet? Has the Messiah come? Has he been resurrected? Has he ascended? Is he seated next to the Father so that he might pour out the Helper for our sake? And the answer is yes. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. (sighs) That went a lot faster than I thought it would. This is not a zero sum game. This is not a zero sum game. This is not a take it or leave it kind of situation. If we don't pursue the Holy Spirit the way that the early church did, there are consequences. There are consequences. It's not just a zero-sum game. It is far too easy to have a very thinned out, as I've already said, a very thinned out theology and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what I mean by that? That it's easy? It's easy to diminish it. It's hard to earnestly desire it and pursue it. It's easy to sort of just keep it in the back seat because no one in here is going to probably, well, I don't think, very few in here are going to admit that they're cessationists. Of course, I'm not a cessationist. Of course, the gifts continue, but it's very easy to just have a very thinned out view of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I was challenged to think about Acts chapter 19 in the context of our church. What if Paul walked in? What if the apostle walked in and went up to any one of us and said, have you received the Holy Spirit? Would we be confused? Would we not know what he's talking about? The apostle Paul, that's his first question to these people in Ephesus. It's his very first question. Would we be confused? What we do... What we do... When we preach and teach a gospel without the Spirit, we preach and teach a weak gospel. We preach and teach a gospel that's not an empowered gospel. See, because God has redeemed us and saved us for his purposes and for his glory. He saved us and redeemed us to make us a holy people that are zealous for good works. That are zealous after the things of God. And if we don't preach a gospel, and we don't study a gospel, and we don't talk about the practical implications of the Holy Spirit, in empowering us to do that, we're preaching a weak, unempowered gospel. Because God has not just saved us, and then left us alone, and then we kind of figure it out from here. God has saved us, and called us to be on mission. He's called us, and he saved us to be about his purposes, and about his ministry. And if we don't think about, and constantly press upon us, and earnestly desire the Holy Spirit then we have a weak place of ministry. We have an unempowered kind of ministry. Let me talk about how this looks. Let me talk about what this has looked like in my own life. And then I'll talk to us about first and foremost foremost, how it'll look in the life of this church for today. And then we'll spend the next several weeks talking very practically about the different gifts of the Spirit. Because everyone wants to know what about tongues? We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I have two pretty dramatic times when the Holy Spirit uh, really came in a a powerful and palpable way in my life. And it was early on in my walk with Jesus. And I'd been married for about 18 months or so, maybe two years. And... um, I was, I was struggling in my faith. I was, uh, I was living for the world in many ways. I was going out after, after work and and, and drinking and gambling. Um, and we were at a, in a mega church, and the mega church had grown to the point that they actually had to put up a tent in the parking lot, because we outgrew the building, and so they bought this old circus tent, that would seat about a thousand people, and the office building was the church building now. And during the Sunday song service at one point, I leaned over to Vanessa and I said, I don't believe any of this. I don't, I don't believe this. This is not, this isn't true. And one other song went by and I just said, I got it. I got to get out of here. I don't, I don't buy this. And I left, and she was crying, and she stayed in the service. And I made it out about halfway to my car. And then from the office building came running one of the pastors. And he was running right at me. And he said, Matt, I was just praying for the service, and God told me to get up and go find you right now. And I fell to my knees and just wept. And I just confessed to him all that I'd been doing, I confessed to him my sin and that man took me under his wing and discipled me. And, um, and really showed me what it was to earnestly pursue Jesus, to earnestly desire him in ministry. Yeah. So about a month later, we were just, Vanessa and I were considering what's next in life for us? What are we supposed to be doing with our lives? And I was driving down... PCH. We lived in Monterey, California. Ooh, tough life. <laughs> and um, I was driving on the road and I just was praying, just asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do with our lives? And the only audible time I ever think I heard the voice of God speak to me, and he said, Vanessa's going to have a baby. You're supposed to go to Bible college in the Northwest, and you're going to be a pastor. And I don't know when I tell this story because I've actually never told it publicly because it's just not the normal way that God helps us to make decisions. I mean, normally our decisions come by counsel, prayer, wisdom. It's not the normal way that God helps us make decisions. So I just thought, wow, okay, I'm going to just pray about that. I'm going to give that to God. I'm going to just think about that for a few days. Vanessa calls me about an hour later and says, you'll never believe what happened on my lunch break. She said, God spoke to me. And he said, I'm going to have a baby. You're supposed to go to Bible College in the Northwest, and you're going to be a pastor. (laughs) And I thought, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And so just, you know, not to get too uh, nitty-gritty, but I'll say that for the first two years of our marriage, we did not prevent having children, and we didn't have any kids. And now if you look over there, you see we have no problem having children. (laughs) And that night, we literally went into Google, and we just typed in Bible College Northwest. I had knew nothing of Multnomah. I knew nothing of Portland. I knew nothing of Western Seminary. I typed it in. I applied. My wife at that time was in the Army. She's like, don't you realize I'm in the Army? I can't just move to Portland whenever I want. I'm a slave to the United States government. And I just said, God's going to work it out. God's going to work it out. And the day that she... uh, It's a long story, but... Essentially, she got pregnant and got out of the army. <laughs> and we moved up here, uh, 13 years ago, this month. Now I tell that story, and it's it's dramatic and it's it's um it set it changed the course of our life in a radical and dramatic way. But God also speaks to me and to others and to you. I heard a testimony just this week of something very just subtle and simple, just, just a tune to the Holy Spirit. A brother had a word for another brother. He, he said it to him. And by the end of the week, it was clear that it had been from God. It is, had been from God. And it's just like, that was. That's a, it's amazing that God, the King of the universe, who upholds everything by the word of His power, would still give us impressions and speak to us, to guide us, to care for us, to love us. So how is it going to look first and foremost in this church? How are we going to start pursuing earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts? The place that it starts is longing for the presence of God. Longing for the presence and the power of God not just longing to have speaking tongues or not just longing for certain kinds of gifts but longing and waiting for God himself we think of exodus chapter 33 when moses says if your presence will not go with me then don't even bring us up out of here it's a longing for God himself. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. The Lord loves the gate of Zion more than the dwelling place of Jacob, which means that God loves the assembly of his people, longing to be with God in his presence as a corporate people, longing to worship him, to sit under his word, just be closer to him from strength to strength, trusting and abiding in his promises, trusting and resting in him, and earnestly pursuing God for God's sake. And when we pursue God, when there's an earnestness to see him and to know him and to love him and to just be in his presence. These things start to come. That is the means whereby we're earnestly pursuing it and earnestly desiring it. We're earnestly pursuing and earnestly desiring God and his presence those are the times when we're when you have these moments when you're when you're in your private worship spot when you're in your in, in my, when I'm in my study or in my bedroom and I'm singing God's praises I'm reading His Word and then a heart that's just flowed just begins to kind of speak utterances that I don't know what they mean but they're edifying they're building up and they come from a place of wanting to see God beholding His beauty and His power and His glory that's where it starts. That's what keeps it from being crazy and willy-nilly. And you know what? We are going to make mistakes. And sometimes it might be a little crazy and willy-nilly. And that's okay. Because this is a new endeavor for us. If we're earnestly going to desire it, if we're earnestly going to pursue it, it's not going to look perfect every single time. And God is patient. God is exceedingly kind. As we earnestly pursue Him and earnestly desire Him. We must remember, When Jesus says, I must go to the Father so that I can pour out the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's writing his own death sentence when he says it. He so longs to give us the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, he knows that he must suffer and die to do it. He must suffer and die and give up the presence of God so that we might have it forever. It all ties together at the cross that he is saving and redeeming a people for Himself. That He's died for all your sin, all my sin, so that we are positionally righteous in Him. And now, through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to become actually righteous. We begin to be conformed into His image, relying on the power that God supplies to us through the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're going this spring. (laughs) Looking to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, it is the promise, the pervading promise of the Old Testament, and it is ours by faith. It is ours by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We must start by seeking you first. We are grateful for it. We are grateful for the empowering presence and promise of the Holy Spirit. Help us now, Lord. To worship you in spirit and truth, we're grateful for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So now we're doing two things. One, we are going to partake of both of the ordinances that have been given to the church. The first ordinance given to the church is baptism. It's the sign whereby we identify with Jesus and his people. It says in in the book of Acts that we just read from that as many were baptized were added to their number. So baptism, is. We're, as a church, we're not just like a, a baptism outpost. We don't just exist to baptize people and see them on their way. We exist to baptize people and then to bring them into the life of the church. To bring them into the life of the church. And we have the joy and the privilege to do that today for three young people. We're grateful to God for his ministry and his blessing. So what we're going to do is while they're preparing to get into the waters of baptism, we will come up and get our, uh, the elements of communion And communion is a second ordinance that's given to the church. And it's the ongoing covenant renewal meal. If baptism is the sign into the covenant, communion is the ongoing covenantal renewal meal. So if you're a Christian and you've been baptized, you've made your faith public through the waters of baptism, then you are welcome to partake of the table with us. You can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat. Uh, We're actually going to sit and hold the elements in the seat for a moment while we watch the baptisms, and then James White will come up to lead us to partake corporately.